And I think some of the things that come, you know, we talked a lot about agency and student agency as part of the PYP enhancements leading up in the year before this. And I think there's a real point to now go back and say, well, what have we learned about agency? What is it? What isn't it? What about parent agency? Do we have a shared understanding of learning and teaching? You know, we, I think other schools might also empathize with the idea that what we think is, is learning and the way that we present that in a remote experience may not be what parents think is learning. Um, and this discussion about if there is no teaching, is there going to be learning is one that came up in one of our parent discussions. Thank you very much for tuning into my Run Your Life podcast series. I always say this, but I really do appreciate your time and energy and for tuning into any episode that you can. Over the past several weeks, I've been recording an In Times of Uncertainty podcast series, which is all about interviewing educational leaders and teachers from different schools around the world to have an in-depth discussion about how they have been kind of grappling with the COVID-19 public health crisis, what they have learned about themselves in the process, and what it is that they have been focused on during these times of uncertainty. In today's episode, I have a friend on. His name is Julian Edwards. He is the primary principal of the Intercommunity School of Zurich, and I've known Julian since 2008, and we kind of reflect on that at the start of the podcast and how fast time flies. But as good fortune and luck would have it, uh, Julian is actually moving over to the Co School next year, so I'll be working closely with him, and I think he's going to be a wonderful addition to the school. But in this episode, Julian talks about his school's journey over the last several weeks, uh, dealing with the public health crisis as a leadership team, some of the, the discussions that they have had and how they have communicated the big ideas to the teachers to give the teachers the, the freedom and trust to just do their best work possible during this uh, distance learning time. So Julian shares some insight into what his school has done, how they have approached distance learning and what they did to get back to face-to-face teaching because that's the situation they're in now. They, they have gone back to two days a week of face-to-face teaching and then three days distance learning. So the kids are still getting five days a week of schooling, but it looks a little different. It's a blended learning mix. So I'm really thankful that Julian came on the show to share his insight and to share some of the struggles the school had faced, but also some of the successes that they have had over the past several weeks with distance learning and learning to navigate the tricky waters of the COVID-19 public health crisis. So without further ado, let's jump right into this discussion with Julian Edwards. Okay, Julian, you and I have been uh, trying to plan this for for some time and obviously very busy times, but just to set the context for the conversation, I want to let people know that are listening that you and I have actually known each other since I think 2008. So yeah. we, we met in 2008 and you were my first PYPPE workshop leader. I flew from Azerbaijan to Toronto and uh, took that workshop weekend workshop with you and Mark Baxter mm-hmm. at uh, United or, or sorry, Upper Canada College in, in Toronto. Uh, great weekend workshop. And then after that, you and I just kind of crossed paths and saw each other at conferences and, and just stayed connected. And, and here we are 12 years later. That's right, yeah, and and and, uh, and you were good enough to return the favor. I think working with some of our teachers on a uh, video conferencing, ironically or interestingly, a few few years ago, particularly looking at agency, and uh, I guess that's the, the the thread that's gone through, hasn't it? Is this interest in whether it's subject based or for both of us now, even more broadly, this this idea of agency for teachers, agency for students. So, 
yeah, it's been uh, great. And we get to have more conversations next year as well. Yeah, that's going to be amazing. And we're going to dive into that for, for certain. Um, and one of the things I wanted to say was that that early workshop was, even though it was PYP PE based, it was really just great pedagogy, good practice, the power of reflection, inquiry-based teaching and learning through the lens of physical education. So what that did for me was that it really allowed me to explore and and uh, create a sense of freedom in my own teaching about what was possible. And that really led me on my path to embracing PYPPE and then learning how to apply that outside of PE uh, to the other single subjects and then just classroom teachers in general. So it's been a really interesting journey that really was kickstarted with um, that workshop with you. So, um, so just to start, Julian, I wanted to ask uh, to you to disconnect personal or professionally and just to kind mm-hmm. of think of yourself as a husband and a father and a friend and the crazy COVID-19 public health crisis, <laughs> but how have you been personally through it all? I think we've been very lucky. You know, context is everything for sure. And um, we're in Switzerland at the moment. And I think of all probably the, the regions of the world, Switzerland has uh, been lucky in terms of the, the legislation and also literally the, the what's on the doorstep. You know, um, Swiss people have been allowed to still get out and exercise. No real restrictions on how much. And when you say exercise in the Zurich region, you've got hills and you've got lakes and you've got mountains. So... Um, I think probably most people working in this area would say how lucky we've been um, to be able to live a real normality in some ways. And even with the more lockdown phases, being able to get outside um, has been a real boon for well-being, mental health. Um, so that piece has been great. Um, I think probably the, the, the working at home, as with many families, two of us being involved in education, my daughter being at the school, uh, has has worked okay because we've had enough space. You know, we've all had our own zones to work in. I call mine the, the dungeon, you know, when I'm yeah. Zooming with uh, our primary staff. Uh, initially, it was a real novelty to have this space and office on my own. And probably by the end of it, I was felt like it was a bit of a dungeon. But we've been, we've been very lucky. And I think probably all of us really connect a lot with our roles. You know, my daughter's a really um, engaged learner and she didn't really miss a beat with the COVID, you know, she was, she was very able to enjoy the process of, of being online and the way that our secondary school handled it made it very engaging or a lot of um, zoom meetings. And again, my wife is a PE teacher. So there's a real challenge there that she again, immersed herself in is how to, how to keep students. It's funny. You said reflection, Andy, you know, how to keep students active, basically doing the Joe Wicks boot campy type stuff and keeping fit, but also reflecting on their well-being throughout that process. So I think we've all been learning and enjoying the learning of it. We've been lucky with the context um, and the physical restraints have, have been not too bad. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we count our star, lucky stars, I think, for where we've been during this. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I want to go to early days for you just to, again, just to kind of frame up the discussion, but can you just talk a little bit about early days, where you're from? And I know that you're somebody that really embraces physical activity and sport and, um, you know, having a very healthy lifestyle. So just tell us anything you want about early days and, and, uh, and where you're from and anything yeah, else it's a it's such a good story you know I, I grew up my, my parents moved one county along from Devon to Cornwall in the UK when they were very young and we were very young and um, everyone told them in those days that was kind of international global moving don't go to the next county people won't accept you yeah. uh, we settled in very well and I had a twin brother an older sister who was fantastic uh, looking after us but a, a twin brother and um, growing up alongside somebody who, you know, the play opportunities, the opportunities to be creative. Uh, you know, we, we spent all of our time building imaginary worlds and, and physically playing them out, spies, cowboys, you name yeah. it. And then uh, then you find this thing called sport, which actually does the same thing. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a creative thing. Uh, it's a physical thing. And, and having somebody to play sport with throughout um, my kind of early childhood and, and later childhood, Made, made sports something that was just so enjoyable and the social side of it as well. Um, and then as a, as a so I, I couldn't think of anything else to do. So I went into a sports science degree because it was what I loved, you know, that idea of pursuing your strengths. Um, if you're really going to enjoy your life, ended up in PE teaching. And I think quite quickly got into working initially with um, in regular secondary schools, but into special education 
And I think that was probably the the real um, light in terms of learning for me, working with with a population of, of students who are so diverse in their ability. Some learn, literally learning to walk, um, you know, at the age of 15. Um, others who were real sportsmen, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember working with a guy called Isaac Newton, and I hope he's uh, still around. It would be great to see him. But Isaac was a, a, an amazing athlete um, who had cerebral palsy. But he could do these amazing things. He was the football goalkeeper. He was, he was a cricketer. Um, he was a passionate sort of Jamaican cricket supporter. But the guy was just an athlete with, um, who had to work around some limitations that, that he had. Um, but you know, that, that was, for me, the, the best thing about understanding curriculum is curriculum. You know, there are objectives, but actually it's, it's the individuals who bring learning to life and working the curriculum around the, the individuals that is what makes teaching exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then after that, we got into PYP, et cetera, and uh, yeah, more, more, more into leadership, I guess. So... Talk about some, so obviously social and emotional learning was uh, very important to you based on kind of your own narrative, right? Growing up and what you valued. And if you think about yourself as an early educator, not just an early educator, but what do you feel are some of those early strengths that you brought into education and developed within yourself that ultimately led to your trajectory into leadership? Mm. That's That's a really good question. I think um, I, I wasn't that great um, a sports person as a, t- as a teacher of physical education. You know, I, I, I didn't learn that much at school. Um, I was naturally very athletic and that made me good at sport. Um, so I think uh, when I started doing my degree and we started getting into practical things, I realized actually this is hard stuff to learn. So ironically, I think sometimes the, the image of the phys ed teacher is the guy who's just brilliant at everything, you know, and the kids look up to that person because they're so good. But I had a huge amount of empathy um, for students who weren't good learners. And actually, I found it quite hard to learn sports. Um, and you'll probably find out if I start picking up golf in the future, yeah. that's very true. But, um, you know, that, I think that, that piece of empathy and understanding that uh, learning is different for everybody. And it, just because it comes easy to a teacher or a student in the class, it doesn't mean that's the same experience. And I think that um, really wanting to unpick the personalization of learning is probably what attracted me most about opportunities in the IB and the primary years program was building a program around um, really trying to personalize as much as possible the experience of learning. And I think in leadership, it's the same thing, you know just understanding that um, there's not a single playbook and a single way of being a teacher or of um, being at your best. Um, but, but being at your best is such a motivating thing. So I think that's what, you know, I really wanted people in a, in a PE class to feel that they were at their best, but not necessarily judge themselves against everybody else, just judge themselves against them, their own progress. And I think in leadership, the same, um, we're all on different pathways and really, realistically, in most schools, anybody working at 60 or 70% of their capacity on a given day is still doing a great thing uh, for kids. If we can be working at 80 or 90% of our capacity on many days, we're doing even better. So I think individual potential and empathizing that we're all in a different pathway probably connected that teaching to leadership. Yeah, that's, that's really important. And that idea of personalized learning is something that I've really tried to embrace over the past five, seven years, and not only my own teaching, but in the workshops that I deliver to show how we can personalize to a, to a deep level when we, A, let go of control. And, mm-hmm. and you have to let go of control in order to personalize because it's not about creating 30 different lesson plans. It's mm-hmm. about... Uh, applying a framework that allows you to personalize learning and what you're saying about um, with uh, leaders also personalizing learning and development for their teachers and that's very much what we do at the Coast School so you're coming to a school that totally embraces the idea of the the uh, professional inquiry Mm -hmm. we call it where teachers can identify what it is they feel that they want to develop within themselves have PD funding to allow them to develop that area and then to have support of coaches who are there for them as well. So when you think about um, your own, own role as a leader, I guess during this very difficult time, public health crisis, what is something that you really feel that you most learned about yourself as a leader uh, during the public health crisis? 
I think I one of the things that I reflect on the most is is um, the ability to trust the the other people who are leading as well. You know, and I think uh, we we've done a lot of work before the crisis, uh, looking at middle leadership and having discussions about um, some of Andy Hargreaves work, particularly about the difference between leading in the middle and leading from the middle. And I think as a, as a senior leader in a school, you're always worried. You're always guessing. It's, again, it's like a sports analogy, but you're always worried whether you're contribution is the right one you know it's, it's like in a, in a rugby team is the is the outside half using the ball too much is he trying to do too much on his own is he is he really bringing other players into the game as he should you know um and i think with the leadership side of things in the ceiling am i am i controlling too much am i not controlling enough is it going to be better if this is decisively done or is this better to be done inclusively but as I said, with the middle leadership, we looked at leading from the middle as opposed to just passing down policy that had been decided or communicating up um, difficulties or, or questions from uh, grade level teams, but actually leading out. And we got some progress on understanding what it would look like um, with our middle leadership team, but, but we hadn't actually enacted it with anything because at that point, we didn't, I don't think we realized how agile we could be with these things. Now, when COVID hit and we had to make all these decisions, suddenly we couldn't do everything individually. We couldn't do everything from the top. We had to work particularly through grade levels and teams. And I think that was where I saw very quickly the trust that I already knew existed with the, the, the coordinators, the middle leadership of the school um, was really rewarding. It's one of those moments when I really did, I recognize that this actually really does work. Mm-hmm. And as I said, as a leader, you're always trying to do the right thing, but you, sometimes the evidence that it's working isn't always there. But yeah, I think for me, it was about you, you can, if the conversation is there, the communication is there, you can trust the whole leadership capacity of, of the school to do great things. And what do you think senior leadership or senior leaders in a school need to let go of within themselves in order to make that happen? Hmm. Well, I think, again, that's probably very much dependent on individuals. You know, I think you've got to look at yourself to say, it's the whole idea, again, Andy, isn't it, of strengths. And, you, you know, your strengths overplayed being your weaknesses. Um, for me, <laughs> it's probably uh, let, letting go of interest in, in everything. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, I, in an ideal world, I, I could adopt lots of different roles during a day. I could be the principal for a bit, then I could be a teacher for a bit, and then I could be a teaching assistant for a while and maybe do something else because, it's, for me, it's all interesting stuff. Um, and I think that can lead you down a, a rabbit warren. If you're, uh, if you're interested in learning, you can want to be involved in everything, and you don't need to be. So, yeah, I think, for me, it would be letting go of the fascination and interest in everything and really prioritizing saying, well, what do people need from me? They don't need me to be involved in everything, but what do they need to me to be involved with? Yeah, and that's one of the things that are at our school, and I think you already know this about the co-school, is um, really the importance of feedback and to, you know, we talk about getting student voice a lot. Well, we, it's important mm-hmm. to get teacher voice as well and to seek feedback from the teachers and then to use that feedback to better understand yourself as a leader, what you might be doing well, what you need to get better at. And in order to understand the right direction to move, you know, individually, but also collectively as an organization. Mm -hmm. And when you think about your school's experience with COVID, can you take us through the early days and Mm -hmm. how did your leadership team handle those early days? And what were the big ideas that you had communicated with the teachers? Mm, thanks yeah we we'd um in a way been lucky at coming seeing seeing this happening globally and moving gradually from asia um and we were in touch with a lot of schools in asia to find out what their experiences were so we had a although everybody says there is no blueprint there is no playbook we had quite a lot of experiences to to lean on from in the network and so some of those proved to be just absolutely perfect advice one of them was um and this is what we we communicated one of them was um do you you know, don't, don't do another school or don't try to change and create a whole new paradigm of learning. Do what you do because you don't have a, a long time frame and transfer um, the routines that you have with your kids. Um, try and transfer as much of the schedule as you can initially uh, because they're going to be in this ambiguous situation as well. So we were really trying hard to build on the platforms that the students were used to, to using. 
um, and try to keep learning as similar as possible. Now, in the long run, that didn't work. Um, and we heard from other schools that they went rapidly through phases. Mm-hmm. So they went through a number of cycles. So again, I think what helped us at the beginning was to say, we're going to do us first, but also this is phase one. And there's likely to be phase two and three. Um, so that throughout the process, we were able to at least communicate a little bit about what was likely to come ahead. Um, but the first thing we heard and we communicated was do rigorous learning first in the format that we do it, um, because everyone's going to be worried when they move online, is learning still happening, you know, particularly from, from parents. Mm-hmm. So we, we went through that phase, we set it up, and then it was really about trying to predict the next phase with enough time that it didn't come as an abrupt and shocking change. I think for all schools, it's been hard. Um, literally, we probably got into two or three weeks at a time and then had to move into another phase where we added more Google Meets, for example. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, uh, we moved from everybody at home to bringing back uh, half classes during the week for two days at a time. So they'd be learning at home for two days and learning at school for two days. So all of this needed basically a new schedule, a new organization of the staffing involved, and it's a lot of change. But I think we were, it's interesting that idea of um, the feedback. We, what we tried to do was to use our middle leaders again. Um, we, I, we talked about it yesterday, and we were talking about stand up meetings. Simon Breakspear talks about, um, you know, in crises and, and the agility needed in, in things like this often require rapid cycles of, of change and also a lot of stand-up meetings to quickly download both ways uh, in, in input and feedback. So we used a lot of middle leadership meetings where we would organize stuff as the primary leadership team, meet with the middle leaders and say, what does this look like? What feedback do you have? Using the chat from the, the Google Meets. Um, and it was, I, I think, really effective. And certainly everyone would have liked more time, but that, that rapid cycles, those quick inputs, those short meetings just to say, what can you live with? What can't you live with? What have we missed that could be um, dangerous or devastating if we get it wrong? Um, that helped a lot. So, yeah, communication, we're going to go through a number of phases. We're going to try to do us, but we're also going to take feedback. And we were sending out weekly surveys to our families as well. Again, mm-hmm. advice from other schools. You can't get enough feedback. You know, the more mm-hmm. feedback you get, the more you'll know how it's going. And that also helped us to take the pulse of the community and respond. So, um it's been, yeah, it's, it's no doubt it's, a, it's an exhausting thing to go through. Yeah. But what a sense of achievement when we look back at how much change we've dealt with and how effectively kids have continued to learn, which I think is the, the bottom line of it. Right. And what do you think you're, you're most, like two things, what do you think you were most proud of? What, like, what were some of the glowing examples of quality distance learning that you had seen? And I guess what's one thing that you you guys as a school really had to brush up on during that time uh i think the 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 quality that that kept coming through really was in the the assessment pieces the and and by those i mean a lot of it was google meets or exchanges for the older students a lot of the email exchanges about feedback and and teachers coming to me and saying wow this is the quality or the the uh the level of thinking that's gone on in this uh, unit of inquiry, um, the being able to, some of them with this idea of video conferencing or even email conferencing on chat, they were able to get insights sometimes into students that were new, you know, that in this right. situation, perhaps for some students, the, the idea of, you know, we, we used to do journaling between the teacher and the, and the student, and a lot of classes and, and schools still do, but this idea of being able to share my thoughts, not face-to-face. So for some students, a written exchange with the teacher on what I need and this is what I'm thinking, this is where I'm struggling, seem to be uh, given new insight into that learner. So I think the highlights are really the uh, as much about that, that ATL, those, those learning-to-learn skills right. and the ability of children to communicate how they were doing with their learning. And we had some... You know, across the subjects, we had some great feedback. The number of children engaging with um, with the PE lessons, the arts. Um, again, interesting where passions lie, you know, and, and being able to see that some students, the, the more open-ended arts challenges became things that they really threw themselves into for well-being. And we got some fantastic uh, examples and, and art pieces as well. So I think globally it was more about the 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 learning to learn piece i think that there were the highlights the ability of the children to have agency mm-hmm. while they were working at home 
Yeah, that's one of the things that we did. We we were noticing that um, there weren't as many um, kids submitting work on Seesaw as we wanted in the single subjects early on, right? <laughs> so it was amazing to see the art team, the visual art team and the music teachers really kick into gear and think, okay, well, A, they don't know what resources and equipment and things that the kids have at home to be able to Mm -hmm. partake in art and music lessons and PE lessons. So that's something that needs to be recognized. So you can't just pitch out a a one-size-fits-all art activity. So they created these amazing choice choice boards, we called them. And it was really based on what art materials and art supplies they had at home. And if they had this, well, then the kids could have right. a, a, mm-hmm. a few different choices with, with what they could do with, say, oil pastels if they had that. Or in music, if they had um, a ukulele, they could do that. If they didn't have any musical equipment at all, it was a body percussion kind of focus. Mm-hmm. So it was really cool. And what we did see was a, a definite increase in the number of kids submitting work to seesaw because suddenly it's personalized and it's relevant Mm -hmm. and me going through the seesaw like it's i was just kind of going through and looking at all of the different work and it was amazing to see some of the some of the kids and what they were actually posting and it was you saw them in a different light and you could see that they were personally invested in what they had created a lot of times Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it was it was really nice to see um when you we talk about your school going back to face to face a lot of schools listening, the teachers listening to this and leaders listening to this are still not back to face to face. So just talk about some of the discussions that took place uh, in regards to safety, health mm-hmm. and safety, and some of the restrictions that you were up against when returning back to face to face to just to paint more of a picture for us. Yeah, thanks. And we were hoping when we we got the okay to come back face to face with the in switzerland you have federal and then you have cantonal regulations so there's a broad countrywide set of regulations and then the areas in in zurich will also give you more specifics and um we were required to keep a social distancing of two two meters initially Um, but then what we found is that the the requirements on swiss schools in primary age children you know were were far lighter there was a lot of different science uh, being used and quoted in switzerland about younger younger students so we as an international school followed slowly behind what was happening in switzerland so even though distancing wasn't required we said yeah we've got to keep two meters between children so we tried to uh, organize classrooms to bring all the students back at once and we were just not able to do that with that distancing. So we had to, you know, if you look at the classrooms at the moment, they're uh, two-meter spaces, individual desks, and um, temperature checking at the gate for every child. We've staggered the morning so that very few... The aim was to reduce the number of students and adults that were circulating together. So we're bringing students in very calmly. It's been a lovely time, actually, um, over a longer period of time in the mornings, checking their temperatures, uh, corridors are one way uh, so there's not not a contra flow classrooms have two meter distancing students have their own equipment set so they have their own pencils um, their own which is theirs packed and and labeled so they don't share that at the moment hand washing every time they come back into class sadly at break times so far um, no equipment unless it's equipment that's uh, cleaned after each use Mm -hmm. so um, it's 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 been hard but it's interesting to see students responding you know they (laughs) the novelty of having their own desk i i equate it to when you're in a big family and you finally get your own bedroom you know it's like yo this is my bedroom nobody else's and i think uh, the idea of having their own desk initially and pretty much i suppose until now has been okay the individual attention with smaller classes i think has worked well again for a lot of students is that transition back and although of course from a family point of view most of our parents would would want their children back at school all week we've been able to really understand where students are at the moment you know with smaller classes more attention we can really pick up on again those more authentic assessment opportunities Uh, and next week we start bringing everybody back in keeping all of the same health and well-being restrictions except for the two meter distance so there will be just less distance between students but we'll still be reinforcing the distance so julian what what is the max number of students in a class right now based on the dimensions of the class 
the actual uh, it, it dep- exactly based on you know with some of our classes we've got the full class of 16 because they're in a classroom that allows that spacing and then some of our classes are seven or eight students do you have spillover so more homerooms now we tried. We, we we were ready for it, but actually, we managed to achieve not having that. And I'm really pleased because I think it works. You know, the, the the whole pod idea is one that we've worked on, keeping a limited number of adults working with a limited number of students who don't circulate much with others. That's worked. But um, we luckily we managed to keep all the students with their homeroom teacher for a large part of the day, which is fantastic. And what about the single subjects? So this is a question I'm really interested in. I asked Chadwick this, what they're planning, Chadwick International School. Um, But can you just kind of talk about that idea of the role of music and and art and PE now and what it looks Mm -hmm. like in your school? Well, we were lucky that we had a, a blended learning. So what happened initially was we focused more on the homeroom subjects in the, the at-school days. So, uh, But in those days, the specialist teachers would be assigned to a pod as well. So they'd work with a homeroom, uh, mainly in the afternoons, and they would be supporting the planning from the unit of inquiry and, and the mass and language. So it really helped to give an insight that way, uh, you know, specialists into what happens in the classroom, children that they knew but actually hadn't seen in that learning context. And then the specialist subjects were, uh, because they involve more circulation around the school, more shared spaces, we put them into the learning at home section of, okay. of, of our last few weeks, um, which, which has worked. And, and I think we're still going to be challenged mainly because of that physical idea that, that a music teacher will see 200 children 200 students you know that that that, uh, that space will have that number of uh, kids going through it so it's it's more about the the health and well-being hygiene side of things that makes the old specialist schedule one that we probably don't re- won't return to fully this year mm-hmm. uh, but i think the idea of these teams working together in a different context and seeing students in a different light is has been very worthwhile yeah, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at uh, visual arts and music uh, going into the classroom in, uh, when we return in September uh, so that they will visit each classroom. And the kids that talk right now is that each kid will have their own art pack. Uh, mm-hmm. PE will begin with um, obviously no equipment to start. Mm-hmm. So it, it's going to require a lot of innovation. And we had a meeting. So we're on the Eid holiday right now. And right before the, the holiday, we had a meeting, all the single subject teachers to begin to look at what's possible so you know we can think of a million reasons why it's going to be difficult but what opportunities actually are presenting themselves now and how can we innovate and and change the dynamic of teaching and learning based on the changing times so it's been you know, a really interesting time and tapping into teachers' internal resources. They have internal resources within themselves. They just need to figure this out and they're going to, and, and we will be better because of it. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's how we're, how we're seeing it right now, you know, and how are you feeling that as well? Like, I know you're leaving the school uh, and moving over to us, which is going to be great mm-hmm. to have you at the coast school, but are you seeing the same thing in terms of, of teachers and the way they're thinking about what's possible during this time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the, the whole, we, the what if, you know, what if we did this? That's a, a phrase that's been circulating around us as senior leaders. I, I think there's a huge amount of reflection and, and probably not enough time for everyone to do it uh, at the moment. But when one of the questions I have is, is what are the questions that we should be asking? Mm-hmm. Uh, as if we're going to learn from this situation, what is it? You know, and obviously there's the, the sort of normal, what, what have we learned from this? You know, what will we keep? What would we, we drop? Um, but also, you know, what, what do we wish... I'd, if this happened again, what do we wish we'd been more prepared with? Where do we wish we had been that would have made these conditions even more successful for everybody? Um, and I think some of the things that come, you know, we talked a lot about agency and student agency as part of the PYP enhancements leading up in the year before this. And I think there's a real point to now go back and say, well, what have we learned about agency? What is it? What isn't it? What about parent agency? Do we have a shared understanding of learning and teaching? You know, I think other schools might also empathize with the idea that what we think is is learning and the way that we present that in a remote experience may not be what parents think is learning. Um, And 
this discussion about if there is no teaching, is there going to be learning is one that came up in one of our parent discussions. Uh, and I think that's something I would love to think uh, as we go through for the future, whether we have to respond like this again or not, that there's a deeper shared understanding of the role of teaching in learning and also the role of learners in learning, because I don't think that's, um, I think it would be highly productive to have that, um, get the right questions. And I think being understanding how agile we can actually be, not so that school change becomes chaotic and that we're behaving like we're in a crisis you know, every day and every month. But we can move quite fast strategically, we now know. We can make decisions that involve some top-down framing and some input from everybody in the school that move us quite fast. So what have we learned about that that we could use again? So I think a lot of the what-ifs are about learning and things like choice boards and agency and voice and ownership. They're also about community agency and collective agency with the adults that support students and also about uh, being braver because we actually can achieve more if we're hyper-focused, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I had you uh, and are you familiar with Ewan McIntosh from Notosh? Yes. Yeah. So I've known Ewan for quite some time and, and I had him on my podcast a couple of years ago and, and I interviewed him again yesterday and we had a really good discussion and, and he reminded me, you know, I was trying to get him to, to um, and he did a very good job articulating how their thinking at Notosh has changed as a result mm. of this whole, whole experience and revisiting you know, years ago, you and talked all the time about Notosh was about teaching schools how to, instead of be problem solvers, be problem finders mm-hmm, mm-hmm. by really changing the quality of the questions that we ask ourselves and collectively the quality of the questions that we come up with. And that's exactly what you're talking about. It's changing the quality of the questions that we're asking and problem finding instead of problem solving in a way that's just a knee-jerk reaction, but to really think our way through what these problems might be and to respond in the best way Mm -hmm. possible um, that reflects quality leadership and quality uh, organization, you know, and what, what it is they're striving for. So I think that's exactly what you're talking about. And, uh, I wanted to ask you also about, uh, during the distance learning time and returning back to face to face, what are the conversations you're having around reporting and what report cards will look like? Yeah, we took quite a, um, a simple, we, we, we did, we looked at a number of things. One was that a lot of the schools ahead of us were already switching to purely narrative. The way that our report cards worked already were uh, essentially reporting on strengths and areas for development. So that's the strengths and goals. So we found that that's, that was going to work anyway, and that the COVID situation would either add new strengths or suggest new goals or they would be pretty much the same ones that we'd identified before closure. So we, we were lucky in that we'd had some time at school and some time uh, with students working at home. And then we, we really uh, wrestled, I guess, with this idea of the, what PYP calls the measurement side of things, you know, the, the, the giving a statement, not a grade, but a, an achievement level. Are you meeting expectations, working beyond or working towards? Um, and we, we figured that actually... Um, we were in a position broadly to be able to say whether a child was pretty much making, uh, meeting the expectations, which we use on a continuum basis anyway. So um, we, we, we just adjusted our terminology um, essentially because our assessment is so precise in continuum terms. There's a lot of mapping against the scope and sequence. There's a lot of individual mapping, a lot of moderation. Um, so it's a very precise science, but in the end it, it it just helps us to make those judgments about our children working within the, the, uh, the, the, the phase, the broad phase that we expect for grade levels. So to be honest, Andy, we didn't change a lot. And we felt that um, particularly with the conferencing, the Google meets, that we really did know enough about students to be able to make it an albeit an adjusted statement of, um, of how they were doing broadly. Uh, of course, this throws up to everybody so many questions about reporting. No, <laughs> I, think totally. it just, I think it just heightens again um, what the, just this revisit in this discussion about what reports, who they're for, um, whose voice they should be in, uh, who the audience, you know, all this kind of thing. So I feel like it doesn't, 
it's made it more straightforward for us and our community to keep reports pretty much as they as they were. And we've been able to do that authentically. Whether or not that's the report that everybody wants in the future, I think is a, a whole different question, whether it's COVID or not. But um, I think there has been great learning. I talked to a grade one teacher yesterday and she said she'd been a, um, just very gently using a probe assessment just to understand where children were, not, not pulling kids out, but just trying to just get a sense that whether they'd made progress or not. And she said she was blown away, really, that uh, no, no child had gone backwards, no student had, which, which we know, right? We know that, that they continue to learn. But she said that so many of them had made progress with their reading and in, in other ways as well. So our assessments back at school are showing that this has worked. You know, that the, although perhaps if you're at home and you're a parent and you're looking at um, product, you might see that sometimes your your you know son or daughter struggling to produce the thing that was the the challenge or the the learning opportunity. But when we look at the learning when students have come back to school, we see that this has been a successful time. So um, I think we're we're confident that the the assessment of of learning has been possible online. And then back at school, we've been able to enhance that as well. So in your case, because a burning question that I've heard from many leaders and many teachers through all of this in a, in a number of different schools is, what do you do if a student didn't hand in any work at all during distance learning? Yeah. Yeah. So are you actually just going to say, okay, base, it, base the report comment on what they handed in and what they had achieved before distance learning? Or are you going to reference the fact that they didn't hand anything in, which is then highlighting the fact, well, if they didn't hand anything in, A, they're not getting support at home. Mm -hmm. There's something going on in the family environment that has not allowed them to hand in the work. So just kind of speak to that. And I'm sure that you guys had had some discussions about that. Absolutely. Yeah. And we we just adopted a school-wide approach and belief that no harm should be done and no harm approach to reporting. So uh, in the MYP, even more so, knowing that we had a first semester achievement level for MYP, for example, uh, it would be a very unusual circumstance that that child would achieve less in the second semester report. So really we were looking at value add um, and no harm. Uh, so you know, there, there were circumstances, we, we obviously tried to follow up to really understand circumstances, but of course you can never tell which, which uh, student had a one-to-one teacher with a parent next to them all day every day Um, although sometimes we were told that you know and we knew that that was happening at home and others where there were three in the house and at different age levels all trying to use two devices between them Um, so as I said you know we our circumstances are so lucky in that we get this slice of time back at school as well and we're not crazily formally assessing students but we are using all of our assessment uh, intelligence to reinforce our understanding of where, where they are. So we have been very, very lucky. I think if we'd been closed for three or four months, we, we would be writing a narrative report and that would be it. But I feel like when we look at the mapping against the scope and sequence and our learning continuum, uh, it's, most teachers are saying, yeah, I can still do this. You know, I can still yeah. slightly modify, but I can still do this. Yeah, that's great. And I think one of the things, one of the, some of the discussions that I've heard uh, again is like, well, you know what, the kids are handing in work that obviously their parents did for them because they don't usually write this well or, or they don't produce work of this quality. And my argument is always, my thinking is, parents are involved in the process of, of learning with the kids. So even though the parents hand might be in the work, what a win, what a win to have yeah, parents involved absolutely. in the learning journey of their, their kids. And, mm. you know, some teachers saying, well, I can't give a mark because I know that it's, it's mm. not their work. And again, it's this no harm policy. And this is what we're doing at the coast school. And we've adopted this philosophy as well, but I've heard, conversations in different schools about that and teachers being really frustrated in knowing it's not the students work hundred percent. And that's my response is always great. What a, what a huge victory for teaching and learning and, and support being given to young kids during a, a critical time. So I wanted to segue into the last part of the conversation, Julian, and returning back to you as, as a person now and, and a leader, but 
wow, you, you've been thrown, you know, we often talk about the biggest life stressors are changing jobs and moving and all of these things. And, and you're experiencing all of that in this moment. You're experiencing the public health crisis. You're experiencing moving countries, packing up, starting a new job. Um, so I, as we said, coming over to the Coast School. So just talk more about how you've been able to navigate and maneuver this big life transition in a way that has allowed you to stay present and connected with what matters most in regards to being a leader, but also with the reality of moving on to a, to another school. So just talk about anything that has been on your mind or how it's mm-hmm. been going. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? I, I work with a, a, a coach and a, uh, one of the questions he's always asking me, which I think is a great one, is what are you learning at the moment, you know, so that will help you in the, in the, in the future or in the next phase, whether it's moving jobs or whether it's just what are you learning this month that will help you next month. And it turns everything into learning. And, and luckily for me, you know, one of my, when you look at signature strengths and values and things like that, um, learning is the thing that, that is, is my energizer. So if, if I can turn things into learning, then I, I tend to process stress better. And I think, you know, I've learned a lot. I think about balance and I'm not saying that I've achieved it at the moment, but I've, I've got my, what will I do next um, list about, about balance. Certainly. Um, yeah. Learning to rely on other people, you know, um, and learning to trust other people, but that, that there's that safety net, as I mentioned early professionally, that there are so many good people that I work with who've got each other's backs. Mm-hmm. And if one of us is up, um, they will help the person who's a bit down. Um, and that's, that's been just reinforced all the time. And that goes at home as well. Uh, my wife, Jane, is, is amazing, you know. And as hard as I'm working through this crisis at school, she's working that hard with our transitional arrangements. You know, it's, it's, it's just um, humbling to see how much energy she puts into our family. And, I, I, you know, that's one of the learnings is I'm not sure that that's quite right. And I'm not sure we've got that balance right. But at the moment in this time, I think we're both learning about resilience and we're learning we can get stuff done um we're learning to take things one step at a time um, as you can imagine the move from switzerland to saudi at the moment isn't quite mapped out mm-hmm. so uh you know we're, we're literally having to take things one slice at a time and we're both learning a lot about the things that like physical exercise are so getting out there and having a run and making sure that all the balance pieces are in place and once in a while i'm still and i you know i know these are all you people have been reading about how to balance your life as a leader for 50 years, but sometimes just closing that laptop and saying, I, I, I cannot give this anything like my best anymore. Not tonight. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to, I need to switch off because I'll be more efficient tomorrow for, for a break from all of this. So yeah, relying on people, um, using, trying to lever your strengths and see those frustrating things as learning opportunities to be better at, next time um, and yeah and i think just the power of family you know we're all um, sad to be leaving switzerland but very excited so there's a lot of motivation in in that for us right that's so cool and i like you know when you were talking about um you know your family and and your wife um helping out and, and with the transition and doing her part of it to keep things going and and Brene Brown, do you know Brene Brown's word? Yeah, yeah. So she she talks about this and, and she has shared this in many of her books and her talks about uh, something that her husband and her came up with years ago was a check-in all the time. So it's never going to be 50-50 in a, in a mm-hmm. partnership uh, or on a leadership team. It's never going to be equally distributed the amount of energy you have in any given moment. Mm-hmm. And you actually have to acknowledge that and check in. So in Brene's case, she would be out speaking, you know, doing these tours and then go back home. Her husband has been taking care of the kids the whole time. <laughs> so he's on 20% right? She comes home, she's exhausted. She's only on 20%. So together they only have 40%. So they recognize that they're minus 60% for taking care of the family. So that's the time to call in the family and say, listen, these are the numbers right now. He's at 20%. I'm at 20%. Where are we going to get the extra 60%? And what do we need to do? So to have these honest, open discussions and to, to have self-compassion and to understand that that's life and learning and the, the power of reflection and just, you know, being vulnerable to admit, I don't have what it takes right now. Mm. So what a great metaphor for a leadership team. 
to say, you know, I'm operating on 20% right now. And then somebody steps up and says, I got 80%, you know, I I'm good the next few days. Let me, let me take some responsibility instead of the bravado and having to pretend that we, we have it all, all the time and we don't. Mm-hmm. So some really important discussions and that's what you're describing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we're really looking forward to, to having you, you know, it's just amazing the way the, the universe kind of collides and <laughs> brings people together. But, you know, I never imagined that you and I would be working together and you're going to be such a valuable, um, you know, addition to our school in, within a new role in our school, which is? Uh, Director of Learning and Innovation. Yeah, what a, what a great role. Uh, it's, um, it's, a, it's a culmination. It's, you know, creativity has been just this, this thing that I've, I've constantly been interested in. And um, it's funny, you talked about you and, uh, Macintosh earlier and uh, this whole idea of a beginner's mindset is 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 the essence of what we've been talking about I think mm-hmm. as, as people um, you know every day is a new day uh, in a school as an individual as a leader and if you're taking a beginner's mindset to it and saying if I didn't know anything about this what would I think uh, would be would would improve this situation whether it's learning or leadership or or our own lives um, that's that's what innovation is for me it's uh, it's taking a beginner's mindset and and really understanding what what matters most and not not trying to make everything matter so yeah it's going to be fascinating and, and knowing so much already about the cast and knowing some great people who are there uh it's uh, something i'm very very excited about yeah great um so are you on professionally are you on social media um yes I'm on, <laughs> i am on it on and off it um i'm on uh cornish Jew, at cornish Jew for twitter Okay. LinkedIn, Julian Edwards. And that's one of my beginner's mindset goals for next year is uh, to tr- turn some of the waffle that comes out sometimes when I'm talking into uh, <laughs> something that people can follow and understand. <laughs> but it's been great. The social media uh, journey for education can sometimes get a bad rap because people are putting stuff out there that is uh, maybe has not been critiqued by people and they're claiming that it might be the best way to do things but you know it's it's about gravitating towards connecting with networks that are going to help you grow and learn and that's how i've used twitter over the years and and just connecting with with networks of great educators and leaders who who i can learn a lot from and that challenge my own growth and learning so i've had a very positive experience with it but i can understand why people have had a neg- negative experience with social mm. media as well. Mm. So mm. I'll include that in the show notes. And uh, Julian, yeah, thank, thank you very much for taking the time today. Thank you, Andy. Very kind. And, and the invitation was great. And sorry that uh, it's taken me a while to <laughs> finally pin down a, a time. Yeah, but we're... yeah, no problem at all. I know, I know you've been really busy, but just stay on the line. I'm going to just close out the show. Uh, everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Julian Edwards. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Mm.